You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. everyone and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Our fusion center has been looking at kind of what's influencing Eastern European elections and specifically Ukraine for a while now. That's Hugh Gomers from Eclectic IQ. The research we're discussing today comes from their fusion center. It's titled Situational Awareness, Ukraine Elections. With the election, of course, there's specific attention to, hey, uh, do we see any influence uh, operations directed at that uh, and kind of trying to look into that, we uncovered quite a few different things, um, though it's kind of been in the wake of months and months uh, of, uh, of activity against exactly that. And so we've seen, I think, malware campaigns and kind of influence campaigns across many different spectra, like media and, and online and, and local uh, that are trying to influence local populace. And so in that research, uh, some of these very specific campaigns uh, that we've kind of deepened out a little bit further came to light. Can you uh, describe to us some of the history here with uh, Russia and Ukraine when it comes to elections? Sure. So uh, back in, let's say, 2014, when when Russia um, annexed part of Ukraine, the, the Crimea area, we already saw there was a there was a, a very digital component next to the the physical kinetic component of you know moving tanks into areas and, and people into areas and things like that under the guise of, let's say, separatists, but uh, with, uh, with, with Russian military people inside those jackets, let's say. Um, and, and kind of tracking that uh, exactly, uh, we've seen, uh, we've seen uh, Russian and other influence throughout the process of who is in power on the other side of the conflict inside of Ukraine. Uh, and now very specifically in, in this occasion, 
One interesting thing um, is that there's been some outside uh, forces trying to, let's say, provide a, a counter force to Russian influence. It's a, let's say, a group of groups uh, of which the most prominent is called the DDoS group. It's kind of a transparency collective that's, um, um, uh, that's trying to take it upon themselves to expose information internal to Russian power and bring it into the light. So they kind of disclosed a lot of documents uh, under the guise of something like the dark side of Gremlin is what they kind of used to uh, call this set of documents. And, and in it, you can kind of see very specifically plans that uh, clearly show people in power trying to use influence operations to uh, create effects locally, physically in, in, in Ukraine and, and globally. Mm. And, and around this kind of leak of documents, and so with some sense, kind of a proof of people trying to influence uh, Ukrainian elections and, and Ukrainian populace for, for just uh, kind of cognitive purposes, we've kind of seen malware campaigns happening around it. And one of them uh, was very interesting to us. Uh, when, uh, when we kind of looked into it, we saw a large set of, let's say, government official or kind of local prosecutors or even kind of non-government, but uh, local lawyer offices or, or law offices even being targeted, trying to kind of find information uh, about, uh, about the upcoming elections and about those that can potentially influence those upcoming elections, immediately followed up by, most likely through exfiltrating that data, by very physical activities based on that information, like if they... Uh, exfiltrated information about finding out specific people, for example, have specific, let's say, social networks. It would try and offline try and influence those people through bribery or, or through other ways of influence uh, to make these uh, these local officials or these local prosecutors or whatever people in power in Ukraine uh, it, it concerned to kind of act in a manner that is uh, that it, that is helping Russia, for example, by spreading. Uh, a certain message or um, supporting a quote in a local newspaper to influence a certain media story or to, uh, let's say, not condone certain, perhaps not violent acts, but kind of uh, protests or something that were kind of pro-Russia. And so we've seen this for the very first time, I think we've, we've seen a kind of microcosm of very well-coordinated, uh, you know, both physical activities and digital activities, uh, kind of all uh, together towards the, the the one goal of influencing uh, influencing the elections, it's been been fascinating to, to to watch and to kind of dive deeper into to some of these activities. Yeah. So when we talk about uh, this notion of hybrid warfare, I suppose I mean this is it. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely right. So it's even interesting when you kind of think about it. There's this triangle of um, of kind of physical activities you use. There's now an angle of digital activities. Uh, and they're kind of governed by, let's say, a cognitive space of the local populace. And it's 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 not a it's not a new notion. I think even Western countries are using this notion of uh, combining, you know, cognitive influence or in influence operations with with the physical or kinetic component for, for a while. But to see it kind of play out in in such a small space in such a small time uh, has been very interesting. But as a result of that, you even hear, for example, Russia publicly saying things like, "Hey, the um, the attention that we have on non-military activities um, versus military activities is shifting to the non-military activities. So the, the focus of, um, of military leaders, the focus of resources is kind of shifting a little bit even from a kinetic component to the digital component, um, which is why now we see, contrary to before, Russia as well kind of played AI card a little bit of uh, you know, those who in the future control AI uh, have a larger capability in the non-military sphere of influence operation. 
than, uh, than, than other countries. And I think that was a, a very interesting angle to kind of add on there as, as both a conversation topic, but also as a concept to think about that there's a link between uh, nation states in, you know, intends to be involved in artificial intelligence because there's a large non-military component in, in, in warfare these days, because, and now kind of zooming into the campaigns we're looking at, um, there's direct correlation with how, you know, malware campaigns operate and how that influences media and then how that influences uh, kind of the cognitive sphere of a, of a, of a populace. It's a very uh, interesting connection to start drawing. And, and also, I think, interesting to see how they are um, focusing their actions based on, I suppose, a, a return they're getting on that investment. In terms of kind of um, they can see the return coming back based on their yeah activities. Yeah, well, I mean, just at a real basic level, instead of, um, you know, paying for uh, tanks and soldiers that investing in some of these influence operations and, and cyber activities uh, perhaps gets a, a positive um, a return on that investment. Oh, no doubt. I- exactly right. The breadth of different kind of, let's say, type of activities in that is also interesting because it also shows um, not all of those methods are very expensive, right? So let's mm. say uh, hacking operations, they might for certain types of individuals be very expensive because they're, let's say, well protected digitally or they're of a certain stature and therefore they have access to special equipment. Um, but when you're trying to influence a populace and not, let's say, get secret information out of a military apparatus to understand where uh, power grids are or, or specific military equipment is, when you're just trying to kind of influence uh, the normal you know, civil servants or, or, or normal population, uh, then protection kind of fades away. And so the cost of uh, uh, malware campaigns directed against uh, the normal populace or normal civil servants or, or like a law office or a small local law office or something like that uh, is a lot easier. The cost is a lot lower. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right in that uh, it's really paying off if you're really involved in the, you know, influencing you know, the, the, the cognitive side of the populace, you don't need to be targeting, you know, highly protected military things. Uh, you're targeting uh, the whole supply chain of, let's say, of government relations to uh, the populace, like the media or like a news that is about very specific topic or even like entertainment websites. We see a lot of um, uh, websites that young people go to, let's say, with uh, interesting pictures or with uh, nice stories or kind of a, a very informal sphere where people interact uh, without political intent. They're just sharing something about their hobby or, or about a joke or something like that, that they're en masse influencing even those websites by injecting their you know, funny pictures that make fun of a, a local politician, for example. Mm. Uh, and so it's not even... You know this this very kind of nefarious idea of we influence the media and there's fake news or whatever. It's also just a there's a there's a young person scrolling through like a picture websites and he laughs because they're like a dog picture that does something weird. And then the next picture is another weird picture about you know something local, funny to him, but at the same time influencing his perception of whatever the topic is about, like a local politician or something from the news or a joke about something in the news. And these very large scale kind of subtle influences eventually. Um, help put, for example, somebody in power, uh, like we see hmm. here in the uh, in the Ukrainian elections. And how how do these types of influence operations that, that we're seeing from the Russians in this 2019 Ukrainian uh, election how do we, how do they compare to the types of things that uh, the Russians did in the 2016 U.S. election? Conceptually, it follows it follows the same set of capabilities. Um, but when you when you look at the influence in in the U.S., we saw 
for example, very large leaks of information that were better protected. Whereas on the Ukrainian side now, uh, we see very targeted things, but there aren't leaking per se. And so uh, I think they're, they're having the same set of operational capabilities available to them, like they can influence, let's say, online websites, they can try and um, have a malware campaign that's attacking a specific subset of people and they're extracting documents, but then how it's orchestrated on top of that uh, seems to be somewhat different uh, between the two. And there's also a much smaller physical components to influencing U.S. elections than, let's say, the Ukrainian elections, where in the Ukrainian elections, you can take information that you have found online and, and try and do, let's say, local bribery, or you can try and uh, fund some extra protests, or you can try and have these you know, physical moments with people to accelerate certain processes, which, of course, is very, very difficult and very, very expensive to do if you're Russia, if you want to do that on, on U.S. soil. And so there's a clear kind of, let's say, tread lightly feeling on the U.S. side where there's kind of an all-in, uh, let's make this happen kind of feeling on the, on, on the Ukrainian side. And of course, they're at the same time using same you know, types of malware, same types of campaigns. Um, we've even seen some of the malware that's being used uh, over the last few months uh, targeting those uh, government officials that we were just talking about used in um, campaigns against um, uh, UK citizens trying to influence people's perception of Brexit, for example, um, where where the same malware families are used, and it seems to be somewhat of the same actors behind it in, in the campaigns by virtue of how we observe them to work. And so there's definitely kind of you know same groups of people or same capabilities, uh, same political interest guiding all those operations, but they seem to orchestrate them differently for each, let's say, theater of interest, be it you know, Brexit influence or or the Catalans in in, in Spain or or uh, in this case, in Ukraine now. Well, let's dig into uh, what you discovered when it comes to some of that malware. Uh, what did you all find? Well, maybe, maybe one interesting part uh, of that is you, you usually see it come in in, in a very, let's say, n- I, I'm, we're going to call it normal way or, or in a very uh, common way. Uh, so those would be, for example, phishing emails or those would be emails sent very specifically to, sp- to specific people containing like an attachment, for example, uh, with a Word document or some other lure that's um, bringing people to to open the document. And in this specific case, uh, we saw, I think, something about kind of radio communications locally or something like that sent to these government officials. And so kind of looking into that, uh, we found um, we found a few different links. So we found one uh, a link to the same malware family we saw across other theaters like influencing Brexit, for example. But we've also seen the document itself being reused in uh, in uh, in campaigns that were kind of previously known to be linked to uh, to to Russian influence, and, and so every time we kind of dive into one of these campaigns, we see both you know this kind of lateral reuse, horizontal reuse across different let's say activities around the world, and we constantly see then when we zoom into that the link back to uh, to to Russian influence. There's always this question of uh, it's serving Russian interest, but you know, is is the Russian military orchestrating this? Is it kind of loyalty, you know, loyalty groups or, or something like that? Of course, those are small question marks everybody has, but it seems to all point uh, in that same direction. Uh, even mm-hmm. when you go kind of back in time, like 215, 216, when um, when uh, some of these kind of activities have still been going on, because from 2014 up until now, I'm not sure all your uh, listeners know this. Um, there's been active uh, conflict. Right between uh, Eastern Ukraine 
and 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 Russian influenced forces and uh, and and Ukrainian military. There's been mm-hmm. conflict and shooting and kind of throughout this whole kind of four year period. And so in in 2015 and 16, um, we've seen cyber again supporting these physical activities by targeting in that case the the power grid, uh, kind of a concerted effort together with kind of the kinetic side of of, of things. Uh, again, kind of zooming into that, in that case, it was uh, Pecha, not Pecha, which again were kind of Russian influence known uh, malware families. And so every time we kind of zoom in, we were brought back to uh, to the same conclusions. And in terms of of the malware and the, the pathways that they're using to infect people, um, they're using uh, word macros? Uh, for example, yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. Um, amongst, uh, admittedly, uh, many other uh, things. Comparing this to other election hacking attempts, uh, other influence campaigns, I mean, is this, are we sort of reaching the point where this is the established Russian playbook, we can recognize it, this is what we've come to expect from them? I'd say so, but I think the difference seems to be, I think the closer it is to their sphere of influence, the more aggressive they go into it and the more different types of influence that's let's say they're they're adding and so as you get closer to russia you have you know local media troll farms influencing like online sites you have you know, some, some sometimes really violent acts or, or simply protests that may you know come to some sort of violent conclusion orchestrated locally you have in the case of ukraine you even have uh, have them kind of insert fake polling data uh into uh into the local sphere like um you have local websites Publishing the fake polling data, or they have a TV station, air it, or you know something like that. Um, they even have um, they've organized kind of religious pilgrimages from uh, from Russia uh, into Ukraine just to have kind of a group of people there that that are perhaps not untouchable, but kind of um, uh, are difficult to to influence. When you kind of zoom out and, and you get further away from from Russia, you know, the, the methods that they can use, uh, of course, shrink and and shrink and, and gets more. Around the, the digital space, around the social space, around less about even media influence and more about kind of content influence in, in let's say, uh, spaces of content like um, like uh, blogs or like news websites that are easier to influence than you know proper media outlets, let's say that they can influence when it's uh, closer to their uh, closer to their sphere. But then let's say for everything that is relatively far from the physical sphere of uh, of, of Russia, I, I think we see the same methods used. Uh, across the board, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really fascinating to to see how I guess the effect that that proximity has on on their ability to do things by you know literally being right next door that opens up a, a whole lot of options for them that they probably wouldn't have otherwise. Exactly right. And there's something especially you know we've seen quite a few of these things now um, publicly. Let's say. Uh, analyzed, you know, the uh, Russian influence on uh, the Facebook platform or uh, these troll farms for, for, for your listeners that, that they don't know where, you know, they have buildings full of people that have racks full of phones that are, aren't just, you know, manually trying to, let's say, add content to blogs online or to, let's say, send these, these half funny pictures that have some sort of political intent, as we talked about earlier, disseminated, uh, they're automating this, they're, they're scripting this, right? They're, there's a group of developers and, and content producers um, that are steering a rack of, you know, 100 phones, let's say, to, to do this in a kind of semi-automated way. 
And so the path to you know further automation and then further autonomy and then kind of support by, let's say, AI or some sort of uh, automated algorithms is, is starting to get much, much closer. And so the, the prevalence of it, uh, I think, will only grow versus be, be, be limited just because machines can start to take over, um, which is going to be very, very hard to, uh, to, to stop, right? Yeah, and, and I suppose, I mean, that, that's one of the, the takeaway lessons here. I suppose as, uh, as other nations are look, looking at what's going on here and trying to determine how can they protect themselves against these, these uh, foreign influence operations, this type of meddling, um, there's some lessons to be taken away from this example. For sure. And I think it kind of follows this path of, um, of we're used to thinking about, you know, protecting our secrets in a certain way. And, and we're used to uh, protecting things of value um, like uh, uh, politicians or, or like a military apparatus. Uh, and so I think we, we kind of cracked the knot on how to do that. Uh, but does she kind of zoom out from it? Uh, let's say your um, your wider political sphere and those that are involved in the conversation that is political, let's say from the media itself to 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 like prosecutors or to judges or you know, the whole kind of environment around it. I don't, I don't think uh, we know very well as uh, as nation states or or as alliances uh, how to really uh, protect them. And, and part of that is uh, is normal computer hygiene, let's say, right? So you, you know not be clicking on phishing emails, not be infected by a malware campaign, not have information stolen and, and so forth. But uh, we, we if, especially in the Western world, we kind of lack the mechanisms by which we can regulate um, the level of protection that we can provide to this wider group of people, let alone if you even draw it even wider, just a populace, right? Learning the populace of how to avoid fake news or, or how to distinguish trustworthy sources from from untrustworthy sources is uh, is culturally something as well that I think that we struggle with. And so we've traditionally been very good at this kind of special protection of a small group of things we know is very important. Um, but I don't think we've cracked a nut yet as a as kind of the Western world, perhaps, or, or anywhere uh, on, on how to do it at a larger scale for this wider area of influence, which leads us very influenceable. I, I think that's what we've been seeing. Uh, for the for the last years, and I don't think uh, we found a good way around it yet. Our thanks to Yup Gomers from Eclectic IQ for joining us. The report comes from their Fusion Center. It's titled "Situational Awareness: Ukraine Elections." We'll have a link in the show notes. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. The 
The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.